dangers where we are looking at the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, and we are looking at them because we face the same dangers today. Last week we looked at the letter to the church at Ephesus, and we found out they were doing many good things, had a really nice list of all the things they were doing, but they had abandoned the love that they had at first, and I believe that is referring to their love for God, and that that's important because our love for God shapes all our other loves. And this lack of love on their part tainted all the good that they did. And if, if you and I are not loving God as first priorities in our lives, then we've chosen someone or something else to put first in our lives. And that is because God made us so that we are loving all the time, and that's all of us. We saw the pattern from last week that is generally followed in the letters, and today's letter follows that same pattern with one small change. Jesus begins in his letter to Smyrna by talking about himself. Jesus assesses the church, but in this case, he does not give a correction. He gives a command, an encouragement to them, and Jesus ends with a promise. So let's read this letter that Jesus dictated to the church at Smyrna. It's found in Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. Remain seated, and let's read together from the screen. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, just a little background on the city of Smyrna. It was a port city north of Ephesus, which means port means trade, trade means money. It was known for being loyal to Rome, and it was later home to a man named Polycarp, a Christian pastor. By the way, who would ever name their child Polycarp? I don't know, their son. But that was a big name back then. That's what he was named. He became a, a Christian pastor, and he was killed for his faith in 155 A.D. because he refused to worship the emperor. In our letter, Jesus begins by talking about himself. He says he is the first and the last who died and came to life. When he speaks of himself and says he is the first and the last, that is a, an Old Testament reference where God talks about himself. And first and last, in this case, means that Jesus is saying he has no beginning and he has no end. Only God has no beginning and no end, which means it's always living, always existing. So Jesus is saying that he is God. And as God, Jesus is in control. He is sovereign. And that has huge implications for us all the time, but especially when we think about the times when we suffer. But that's not all he says. Jesus says he, he died and came to life, which means Jesus became human. And as a human being, he suffered. And then he died, 
and then he conquered death. He came to life and he became human and suffered and died and conquered death so that he could rescue us and give us hope. And these simple words, Jesus says he's the first and the last, one who died and came to life. These help us look at life from an eternal perspective, which is a contrast to what our culture tells us today, Western culture here in the United States and Western Europe. It's a secular perspective that says life on earth is an accident. It just happened that the right stuff came together in the right way and that it went from simple to complex, regardless of the fact that you don't see that anywhere that we've ever seen since. But it says life is an accident, so that we're born and we live and we die, and when you die, you cease to exist. This view of life has a problem because it tells us indirectly that we have no purpose, that there is nothing bigger than us to live for, to be a part of. And that is a problem because, in fact, life was not an accident. God created everything, and he created us to need and to have a sense of purpose. And so to be made to have a sense of purpose and then be told you don't have one creates a problem. But can you also see how this idea that this life is all there is? You're born, you live, you die. When you die, you cease to exist that that actually helps to promote a self-focus. If this life is all there is, then shouldn't I go ahead and try to get all the good that I can while I can? And that means, at least at times, ignoring other people or even using other people, which is the junior version of survival of the fittest. And it also means that I'm going to focus on me. I'm going to be tempted, encouraged, in a sense, to focus on me and making life as enjoyable for me as I can. And don't we see that? Don't we see that all around us? Don't we actually see it in us as well? Well, that's the secular view. The Christian view that we're going to live forever gives us a radically different picture of life. Life on on this earth is just the beginning of eternity for us. God tells us it is the preparation for eternity. And not only are we not an accident, but we were made by God. We were made to have a relationship with God. And God tells us how he wants us to live. He doesn't leave it up to us to try to figure out life, what he wants us to do. Which brings me to this first major point, how you and I view life makes a big difference in how you live life. That's a way of saying that ideas have consequences. How you view life, how you think of it, how the world began and and what authority there is and whether the Bible is true and there's a God and all of these other things, that has a, a huge, makes a huge difference in how you actually live your life. So Jesus says he's the first and the last, the one who died and rose from the dead. And then he gives his assessment of the church, and he uses three words. He says, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, and I know your slander, the slander that's been made against you. So when he talks about tribulation, he's not just talking about everyday troubles that all of us have that are common. He's actually talking 
and saying, I know that you live in some kind of oppression. Somebody's deliberately making life difficult for you. Now, we're not given any details. So it is possible, and I'll talk about this a little bit more, that the Jews in Smyrna might be making life hard for the Christians. Or it could be that what's going on in Smyrna is the same kind of thing that you see in the book of Acts, where the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem are totally against the Christian church. And then you see as Paul goes around in his missionary journeys in various cities in what's modern-day Turkey, there's a reaction from the Jews against this message about Jesus. And not just a reaction against the message, but against the people as well. Well, so we don't know exactly what form this tribulation took, but we do know this. Living with tribulation and trouble of any kind is hard. We, and you and I are all tempted when life is hard to envy other people that aren't having problems like we are right now, to worry and all kinds of other things. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. And here he's talking about they are poor materially. So apparently they don't have much money or they don't have many of the things that make life more comfortable. But here's a question. Is their poverty from just their circumstances, just ordinary circumstances, or does it come from the persecution? And we know from history that later on Christians are going to be poor because of the persecution. Their properties are their property is taken from them. They lose their jobs, things like that. So he says, you're poor materially. But then he says, but you're rich. And he means you are rich spiritually. Now remember, we just talked about an eternal perspective. So if the Christians in Smyrna are poor materially, but they're rich spiritually, think about this. Their poverty is temporary. Because we only live so many years here on this earth. Even if all the years you and I live on this earth we're poor materially, it's still temporary. If they are poor materially, that's temporary. But the riches are eternal. Doesn't end. Which one do you want? You want a little bit now? Or do you want riches for eternity? And Jesus says, yeah, you're having troubles right now and you're poor materially, but you are rich spiritually. Then in verse 10, he talks about the devil. And that name, devil, means somebody who slanders and is an accuser. And in verse 9, we see that the Jews are slandering the Christians. And that word slander in the Greek is literally blasphemy. And it has the idea that these people are, are giving false charges and they're making misrepresentations about the Christians. Now, we don't know, again, we're not told, if these Jews are reporting the Christians to the Roman authorities, trying to get them in trouble about emperor worship, or if they're just speaking bad about them and trying to kind of blacklist them so that life is harder for them. We don't know. We do know this from... And this is, I read this years ago, a letter that a Roman governor, I think it was, wrote to the emperor many years after this. And I, I really like this part of what he says about the Christians, because he speaks directly about Christians. And I'm just going to paraphrase. He says, you know what? These Christians are our best citizens. 
they work hard. They don't get drunk and have fights. They don't have riots. They don't try to stir up people to uh, rebel against Rome. They not only help the people in their group, they help people that are not part of their group. And that was pretty radical back then to do something like that. Said so the only problem we have is they refuse to participate in the emperor worship. And at times it was law. You, you either worship the emperor or die. So we don't know exactly what kind of talk it was, what kind of trouble, but the Jews were saying something false about the Christians. Why did the Jews back then act that way? Have you ever wondered that question? Why did they act that way? Well, many Jews back then did not see Jesus as their Messiah. They didn't think Jesus was the right kind of Messiah. They didn't think he did the right kind of things. You see, they wanted a political and military leader that was going to free them from the tyranny of Rome. And here's one of the key thoughts. To them, a person who was crucified could never be their rescuer, could never be their Messiah, because they lived in a shame-honor culture. And not only when you're crucified are you dead, but you die in a most shameful public way. And they cannot put the two together. That, that Jesus could possibly be a good man or be used by God, called by God to, to die that way. And they didn't think they needed what Jesus offered. A lot of people today don't think they need what Jesus offers if they even believe that he is a lot, was real and is real. So in the minds of many Jews, these Christians that say Jesus is the Messiah, knowing that it's public knowledge Jesus was crucified, they believe the Christians are speaking heresy, that they are distorting the Jewish religion. And they know that God had given them the Old Testament and given him them his word. But Jesus says about these Jews, they say they are Jews, but are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. Now, to be clear, these Jews are Jewish in the sense that they are physical descendants of Abraham. But they are not Jews spiritually in this sense. And the New Testament makes this distinction. Abraham believed God. And God makes it very clear that he sent Jesus, and he sent Jesus to live and to die and then to rise again. And these Jews are not believing God. So they are not spiritual children of Abraham. But both Jews and Gentiles who do believe that Jesus was sent by God and we need him. And he's our only hope to be reconciled with God. Those are Christians. Those are true spiritual children of Abraham. And so Jesus says, oh yeah, they're Jews, but not really because they don't believe. They are a synagogue of Satan. Have you ever thought how he puts those two words together? Synagogue and Satan. These people meet every week in the Jewish synagogue to worship God as they had done for the previous 500 years. But now you've got to put worship God in quotes because now they are out of line with God and God's truth. So they say they're worshiping God, but they're not. And 
as i mentioned last week there are churches and denominations today who say they are christian but are out of line with god and his truth then jesus tells these christians satan will put some of them in prison for 10 days and he's not talking about a literal 10 days almost certainly not but the number 10 has an idea of completeness and certainty when you're put in prison, you are going to suffer, and it is certain that some of you will be put in prison and suffer. But remember this, and it's, it's true then, and it's true today. If you put up the next slide. The real enemy is Satan, not the people who are hurting the Christians at Smyrna, and not the people who are opposed to Christians and hurting Christians today all around the world. The real enemy is Satan. Now, Satan has been rightly condemned by God. He just not ha has not yet received his final punishment. But people, on the other hand, can be rescued by God and changed. And you have a prime example in the New Testament, a man named Saul, who not only encouraged and helped the guys who stoned the deacon Stephen to death, but he then went around and was putting Christians in jail persecuting them, making their life miserable until he met Jesus face to face. And then he saw that he was wrong. And God changed his life and used him. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if you were one of Paul's, Saul's friends, agreed with him, these Christians, they are a pox on Judaism. They are really messing everything up. And all of a sudden, as on his trip to Damascus, he's turned and done a 180. You got to wonder at the, hmm, surprise, that's there. Satan cannot stop Jesus. So he's going to try to hurt Jesus' church, which is people like you and me. And he used people like Saul and those Jews in those cities at Smyrna and other places, and he uses people today. But what Satan really, really likes is when he can get you and I to hurt each other. He really likes that. So Jesus has talked about himself. He's talked about the situation at the church in Smyrna. And as I mentioned about the, the kind of the pattern of things, there's something Jesus doesn't do here that he did with Ephesus. He doesn't say, I have something against you. Instead, he gives them a command that's an encouragement of a kind. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Anybody think you would enjoy being given such a command? <laughs> do not fear what you are about to suffer. Well, this brings us to the second danger. The first danger was, and I have to put it in quotes, doing the right thing with the wrong heart attitude. Not loving God, really. Now Jesus focuses on another danger, and that is the danger of suffering. And you'll notice at the bottom of the screen an insight that you can see clearly just from what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't take away all suffering. He does not prevent all suffering, even though most of us, if we're honest, would like him to. We'd be a whole lot more comfortable if he did. And we're going to talk about suffering more in just a minute. But let's go ahead and look at the rest of the letter that Jesus gives. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death. Again, this ties us back to the eternal perspective. He's saying to them, do not compromise. And when you look at Scripture, you realize that they, they can't, 
they will only be able to not compromise if they're not trying to stand in their own strength, if they're actually trusting in Jesus. A bit like one of the songs we just sang. It's Christ in me. And so as they are trust as, as they are looking to Jesus, they're trusting in him. And what he promises is a crown, a crown of life. He says he's going to grant to those who conquer, to those who listen and follow and trust him and lean on him, that they will not be hurt by the second death. Now that crown of life he's talking about, I believe, is eternal life. But what about that phrase, the second death? Well, here's how it's been explained to me. A person can be born once. If they're only born once, they die twice. If they're born twice, they die once. Now, you won't find this directly in Scripture, but you can see the pieces that support this understanding. The two births and deaths, one is physical, birth and death, and the other is spiritual, birth and death. And God tells us, for every one of us, we're here because we have been born physically. God also tells us that we are born spiritually dead to God. So it's only if he gives us spiritual life that we have any hope. So for a person who is born only once physically, and all their life holds God at arm's distance, says no to God, don't need you, not, not, at least not the way you talk about yourself in the Bible, they die physically, and then they're going to die again. Because God tells us, all of us, we live, we die, and then we are going to stand before God, and he's going to judge us as our creator and our king. And if a person has said no to God all their life, then God is saying, okay, I'm just going to say no to you now, too. And not only are they separated from God for eternity, and God is all that is life and all that is good, but they're also going to be punished. Born once, you die twice. But if you're born twice, born physically and then born spiritually, as God works in us and adopts us, then we only have to worry about dying once, physically. And then eternity is eternity with God. And so as Jesus talks about, you don't have to worry. If, if, if you've been faithful and God has worked in you, you don't have to worry about the second death. He's reminding us of this eternal perspective. Well, let's look at suffering for just a minute. Not a popular topic, but let's look at a few things. Our natural response to suffering is to avoid it. Okay? To, we want to keep our comfort and our security. And that comes from our natural self-focus. So whenever... Life is difficult and we're suffering in some way. We're tempted to wonder if God has forgotten us. We're tempted to envy, as I said before, other people that aren't suffering right now. We're, we, we tend to worry, tempted to worry and try to figure out a way to get out of it. We're tempted to seek our own comfort and to take matters in our own hands. Well, one of the ways for the Christians in Smyrna to avoid the suffering that they had was to deny Jesus. And either to return to Judaism if they were Jews or to worship other gods that they had worshipped before or maybe to worship the emperor. And we know from history that some years later there were Christians in later persecutions who did just that. They went through the motions. They were brought before the Roman authorities and the, and the Roman authorities said you have two choices. You can either offer the pinch of incense to, to Caesar and worship him, or you can die. And they offered the pinch of incense. And so that, that temptation is there. 
and it's still a temptation for us today not to do the little pinch of incense, but to be silent when others are speaking or to agree with something we know that God says is wrong. Because we don't want the suffering, that we don't want the difficulties that come from it. Well, when suffering comes, Jesus wants us to listen to him. He calls us to respond to him with obedience and with trust. If we're going to do that, that means we can't let Jesus out of our thinking, especially when the troubles and the suffering come. Let me have us look at three other scriptures that are going to help us get some perspective on suffering. From 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18, we're going to see an eternal perspective. Paul says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Verse 17, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, that's temporary. Things that are unseen are eternal. And so he's telling us, you look from a secular perspective. This life is all there is. Suffering's not worth it. Look at it from an eternal perspective and you see something different. And he makes this comparison. He says, the troubles you and I have, the suffering, the difficulties, they are slight and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory. And he, and he says in this, if you, if you caught it, the affliction, the difficulties are actually preparing for us this eternal weight of glory. Now, you might think Paul is actually trying to minimize the pain and the suffering and the difficulties. But he's not. Not in the least. He is not trying to minimize it at all. If you just look at his own life and look at what he suffered after he met Jesus. He was beaten multiple times. He was stoned, as in they took fist-sized rocks and people threw them at him until they thought he was dead. He was shipwrecked. He was put in jail. He's not minimizing any of the difficulties. But here is what he is saying. <clears throat> when you look at the good that God has for Christians, and we get just a little taste of it here on earth, we're going to see it unfiltered in heaven. When you and I see the good that God has for Christians, it is so good that the suffering seems small in comparison. That's what he's saying. The good that God has for us is so good, when we look back at the suffering, it will seem so small. Then in Philippians 2, we see Jesus' example. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You look at these verses and you look at that phrase where Jesus talks about himself, and do you see the parallel? Jesus is God. But he became human, and he suffered, and he died, and he rose again for our sake. So he's our example. In a sense, Jesus leads the way for us in all things, including suffering. And then 1 Peter 1, 3-7. to 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Here, no second death, because we're born again. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Pause there for just a second. Notice what he says here. He's talking to Christians. He says, you've been born again. So no second death for you. You've been given a living hope. It's certain because it's not a thing. It's a person. It's Jesus who died and rose again, conquered death and will never be subject to death again. And then he says, you've also been given an inheritance and you cannot lose it and it won't fall apart. And in verse 6, he says, In all of this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, having been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he says, this is what you have right now in your possession spiritually if you're a Christian, and this is what is promised to you. And keep it in mind, because you are going to go through difficulties, and you are going to have pain and suffering, and that pain, God is going to use that pain and suffering to refine you. And the picture is gold that's been dug out of the ground, and now it's being smelted. It's, being, it's actually brought to boiling, and all of this bad stuff is being burned off, and what, le what is left is pure. God says he's, he's, he's doing that to us. He is purifying us, working in our, in our lives. Now, another thought as we move to the end. Even though Western culture tells us to avoid suffering, and that isn't always said directly, but it's a very strong message from our culture. And by the way, if you've ever read any books about suffering that have compared different cultures and the culture's messages to the people, has how they explain suffering and help people go through suffering, Western culture is at the bottom of the list because it offers no help at all. Other cultures, even though they don't line up with the Bible, are more helpful than what Western culture says. But even though this is the message that is around us to avoid suffering, consider this. People every day voluntarily enter into difficulties and suffering and hardships in various parts of their lives. Think about parents. Parents understand this, that being a parent means you're going to give up time and money and energy as you invest in your children. At least if you're, good parenting is going to do that. For athletes that want to compete, they're going to invest the time and they're going to walk themselves through the physical and mental suffering and and difficulties it takes to be able to compete at their best and even in work. Workers will at times voluntarily say, all right, I'm going to give extra hours. I'm going to, I'm going to sacrifice. And why are parents and athletes and workers in other situations in life, are we willing to do this? Because of the good that we hope to see on the other side. There's good we hope to see on the other side, and so we're willing to walk through some difficulties and pain right now. 
So if you understand that, you realize that it's the unexpected suffering that really gets to us. What catches us out of left field that surprises us. Well, here is another major point of the sermon. You and I can respond to suffering well when Jesus' purposes are more important to us than our own desires. Parents and athletes and workers and others can respond to, to difficulties and privations and other things well because they have something bigger on the other side. You and I can respond to suffering well when Jesus' purposes for the universe, Jesus' purposes for us, are more important to us than our own desires. In the Bible, God tells us that he has chosen to use suffering in the lives of Christians to accomplish the change that, he, that we need that he can only make through that suffering. We also see that suffering also helps to loosen our grip on this world and to look forward to heaven. Because when we lose sight of heaven and we turn our eyes back to the earth and the things around us, there is an attractiveness of, of the earth and the things around us to us that we don't want to let go of. But remember the eternal perspective. God says what we see here is, a temp is temporary. One day there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and it's not going to be broken anymore. But this, and then one other thought, because of Jesus' suffering, and we've looked at a couple of ways, and Jesus talking about himself from Philippians 2, because of Jesus' suffering, suffering for all Christians will end one day. It will be gone. Because Jesus suffered, and when he suffered, he suffered more than any of us ever will. And part of what he bought with his suffering is the end of suffering for all Christians. So how should you and I respond when we're confronted with suffering? First, I put these two things together. Pray and trust God. Turn to God. Turn to God. Why should we turn to God? Because we don't always see that God is working. We don't always see what he's doing or recognize his work for what it is. We won't always understand what God is doing, but this we know, both from God speaking to us and from our experience and from Scripture, that God is totally trustworthy and totally good. So when the suffering comes, you don't turn away from God and try to figure out how to do things. You turn to God. And then don't go it alone. Get counsel and advice from others. Ask other people to pray. To me, that is one of the things that has been so important to, to me that I've seen in this church. Our prayer chain is an active one. It's not always busy. But when people have needs, so often they will turn and have others pray. And I have seen God answer those prayers again and again and again. Don't try to go it alone. And don't just throw up your hands. God has something for you to do. For you to work through, to walk through. And like he says in Psalms, he's going to walk with us through that dark valley. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this letter. Uh, our, if we're honest, we're going to say we our natural response is, well, I really don't want the suffering. Is there any way to get around it? But the answer is no, there isn't. You use suffering in many different ways in our lives. 
And as we look to you and turn to you and look to you for strength and for wisdom and understanding and then walk with you through the difficulties, not only are you with us, but we show your goodness and your greatness to others. And Lord, that is one of the things that turned the the Roman world upside down was that the Christians who in the middle of all the regular problems they had and then all of the persecution and oppression that they had turned to you and you answered again and you were there for them again and again and again. And people saw it and they wanted that kind of a relationship with God. So Lord, would you work in us and would you work through us? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.